Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 20. In this episode, we will be hearing from a good friend of mine, Evan Frith, who resides with his family in Claremont, Ontario. Evan will be taking up the subject of being human, which fits very well with some of our recent episodes. I trust it will help us to better express our emotions during a crisis by considering how the Bible sheds light on this subject. How are you doing today? I recognize that this is often a rather casual greeting, the expected answer for which is the equally casual, I am fine. If you will indulge me, I would like to move beyond the casual for a moment and I'd like to, as it were, look into your eyes and ask you how you truly are. We have all been impacted by something that seems surreal, but it has not impacted us all the same. Perhaps you are only just beginning to articulate an answer to that question because this isn't something you have experienced before. And the real answer may be, I don't know. But for many of you, you can genuinely say that you are doing well. Thank God. To be sure, days have their moments. Life has been disrupted and this leads to frustrations. But even though there is a strong presence of anxiety and uncertainty in the air, you are feeling thankful and appreciative to God that you are safe and that you are ready to ride this out. In those moments when realities of life begin to weigh on your mind, a favorite verse or a stirring rendition of a worship song, coupled with prayer, provide the spiritual strength that brings us supernatural peace. But not all of you are feeling this way. For some of you, what is happening right now has created an overwhelming sense of helplessness and anxiety both on behalf of your own circumstances, as well as those of others. For you, the present is almost paralyzing, and the idea that people are somehow continuing life as if nothing is happening feels callous and and cold. If you are feeling this way right now, then it is you I have on my mind prayerfully in composing a few thoughts to share today. I also have in mind some of you who want to feel that way and are doing so deep down, but are suppressing those thoughts and covering them publicly with a smile. After all, we have our pride and, well, nothing can get to us, can it? However, perhaps that is getting harder and harder as the impact of this virus grows ever closer to home and saying, I am fine feels more difficult by the day. In a Q&A published last month in the Harvard Business Review titled, That Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief, the interviewer questions David Kessler, academia's foremost expert on grief, about the realities of what humans are experiencing in a world consumed by COVID-19. From the co-author of the famous Five Stages of Grief, come interesting reflections on what individuals might experience through the five stages as it relates to this epidemic. But the article concludes with a lengthy discussion based on what David has more recently published in a follow-on book that added a sixth stage of grief, meaning. 
While this may not always be discovered, what David came to realize after a life of research and after his own personal tragedy is something that many children of God have always known. Scripture teaches us, and personal experience has reinforced, that God has a purpose for everything, and it is always for our benefit. Through faith, we can be certain that there is meaning to be found in our current circumstances. However, just like the five or now six stages of grief, don't bring us to acceptance or meaning without first experiencing various intensities of denial, anger, bargaining, and depression. So for most, we currently find ourselves struggling to find acceptance or meaning in a situation we are only just beginning to understand. We may be overwhelmed by the news, concerned for our own safety and the safety of our families, heartbroken by what is happening to people we know, and genuinely worried about what lies ahead. As we will see through scripture and the example of Jesus, feeling that way right now and expressing it to God in all its reality is Christ-like and perfectly, divinely acceptable to God. While you may not be ready for this yet, we will also look at how Scripture reveals the powerful experiences of those who are willing to be real with their God and the glory this ultimately brings to Him. Being human is a special privilege, isn't it? I stare out my window at birds building their nests and at chipmunks darting around in search of food, at squirrels chasing each other around trees, or at the odd rabbit or fox that wanders through the yard, and I wonder whether they have any sense that over the past few weeks, one particular member of God's creation has seen all sense of normalcy changed. In that moment, blissful ignorance almost seems utopian. But that is not how we get to live. God made human beings in his likeness, bearing his image, a tremendous, off, uh, a tremendous honor, and yet also a weighty responsibility. From this unique place within creation, we have been blessed with hearts to love and show kindness, to demonstrate justice and act righteously and uniquely, to comprehend eternity, amongst many other tremendous gifts that allow us to demonstrate God's heart here on earth. If only we did that consistently. While the story of humanity has been unquestionably permeated with individual stories of love, compassion, grace, self-sacrifice, it has also been collectively one of projecting images other than that of the true God. In our own selfishness and pride, we have sought to be the image bearers of success, wealth, style, of knowledge, skills, and popularity, while collectively failing on those things that were meant to define us. We all fall well short of the glory of God. And how quickly, with a single event, all of those images that recently seemed so glorious have been made inconsequential. Instead, if we allow it, as we sit in an enforced quietness reflecting on what is truly important, we will be enabled to appreciate with renewed wonder the perfect human, the one that was the image of the invisible God, who revealed what God had anticipated when he created us, who we should have been endeavoring to be more like all along, 
and who shows us a perfect way to experience even the most difficult of circumstances. How amazing that we can even begin to appreciate God in this way. It was God's mercy and grace to a creature that so naturally turns aside from the purpose for which we were made that caused him to turn the original creation story, as it were, inside out. In an unfathomable statement of immeasurable love, and for the purpose of redeeming both creation and our whole human story, he made himself in our likeness. He took on human form. He became Emmanuel, God, with us. He lived here. He would accept the consequences of the world we had transformed through our sin in his human body while here on earth, amongst other sorrows experiencing hunger, shame, loneliness, homelessness, rejection, agony of heart. As scripture says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He experienced all this for us. And as we wonder how words like these could ever apply to the Son of God, we find ourselves appreciating that when he experienced these physical and emotional sufferings, his response, while entirely divine, was also entirely human. And through the example of Jesus, we can begin to understand ourselves and see what a human response should look like when it feels like the world is closing in around us from all sides. It does not look like blissful ignorance. Life does not simply go on. It is not resolved in our hearts with an Instagram post. It must not be suppressed. It is raw. It is real. It is emotional. It requires time. It requires God. It does not mean we lose our hope and faith. Unlike us, Jesus could look into the future with the clarity of being omniscient and with the precision of being sovereign over exactly what would occur. He knew why he had come into the world. It was to give his life. He knew the horrific death that he would die. It was to be lifted up. He knew the exact words he would cry out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also knew the triumph that would be his for all of eternity as a result of what would happen to him. There was no uncertainty driving anxiety in his life. Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He knew about the throngs of the redeemed that would glorify and praise him endlessly as a result of fulfilling an event that had been planned before he ever himself chose to create the world and everything in it. As God, this was the pinnacle of the great redemption story that would prove the greatest attributes of a loving God and of a mighty victory over Satan, sin, and death. It was this that would enable him to offer eternal life to all who in repentance accepted their need of redemption and believed in the risen and vindicated Jesus who had borne the punishment that they deserved for all of eternity while hanging on that cross. He knew who his father was. He knew his future was secure. He knew that all would be well once the cross was over. He knew he would be given a kingdom to reign over 
His was the greatest of hopes. And yet, we read about Gethsemane. There, alone in a garden, Jesus demonstrated the reality of what it meant to be fully human when we are experiencing or anticipating the worst burdens of life. Knowing what was going to happen did not alleviate the anticipation. Knowing what would result did not make the experience any more tolerable. This knowledge made his human suffering worse. We read prior to entering the garden that his soul was greatly troubled. He would plead with his friends to pray with him. In Gethsemane, we read that he was in an agony. We read that he was perspiring so profusely as he anticipated what would come, that it was as if drops of blood were falling to the ground. We read that an angel was sent to strengthen him, inferring that so far as his physical strength was concerned, it was gone. He was crying out to his God, and the first cry that would come from his heart was the same that would come from mine. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That's how Mark writes it, or in Luke, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Of course, he could not escape his deity. He would add this, yet not what I will, but what you will. Having been strengthened by the angel from heaven, he would alter his wording. But for now, let's consider the meaning of these moments God has shared with us in light of our present circumstances. Our God, our Creator, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one who knew the outcome of what he was about to experience, the one who had come into the world for this very purpose, he was overwhelmed by the reality of what was happening beyond the capabilities of his human strength. He would actually plead to his father, the one whom he could address as Ava, even in the most trying of circumstances, to have the course of history and eternity changed. His willingness to submit fully to the will of his father doesn't alter the pained request even a little. He was pleading for an alternative to be found. He didn't want to experience what was going to occur regardless of how great his hope in the future was and in the promises of his God were. The careful balance that God presents on the pages of Scripture is perfectly manifest in the person of his Son. It is possible to be fully dependent upon God for the future and be in agreement as to what that will is, and to be praying in earnest for that certain future to change. In his experience in Gethsemane, Jesus followed in a long procession of God's people who would physically and emotionally struggle through times of anguish. David received promises from God of future hope and glory for both him and his family, yet would experience such suffering that he cried out the very words that would one day be appropriated by Jesus himself while in darkness on a cross. So suitable were they to the ultimate of suffering and loneliness. 
Psalms of lament form the highest percentage of psalms as God records on the pages of Scripture wholly acceptable ways for humans to pour out their painful realities of all different types to him, many coming from the man described as being after God's own heart. These are not faithless humans or people who have forgotten that God is sovereign ruler. They have not forgotten that God has done amazing things in the past or forgotten that he cares for them and protects them. Quite the opposite. These are human beings that are crying out to God precisely because of all of this. Worship and praise mark their words, sometimes as a means to ease into their cries, sometimes as a way to finish. Their solace is not in entertainment, self-medication, busyness, or thinking happy thoughts. They are asking questions of God. They are describing to God how they are feeling right then. They are making requests of God in a genuine desire for their current experiences to change, in faith knowing that he is the only one who could change them. God has taken this and made it his word to teach us how to express our grief, how to question, and to show us that it is entirely acceptable to do so. His own beloved Son, the one in whom he was and is well pleased, revealed the necessity of being real with his God. It is unfortunate that at times this truth has been usurped by a narrative claiming that such emotion and struggle with God is somehow a result of a lack of faith. There is a dangerous message Christians can believe that anxiety or emotional suffering can be done away with through an attitude adjustment or change in perspective, if it's even there at all. You just need to look to God, they are told. You need to just stop worrying and leave everything in his hands is the message they hear or see over and over again. When that doesn't happen, guilt is added to the situation because Christians read a verse beautifully crafted within a social media post, such as, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you, and wonder what is wrong with them. Why do they still feel the way they do? What is missing? Do they lack faith? Do they not walk closely enough with God? Do they not read enough? Do they not pray enough? Is their life not holy enough for God to draw near? Are they even born again? The truth of this verse, which should be understood in much the same way Jesus brought his cares to his father in Gethsemane, is instead sometimes presented as nothing more than a self-persevering habit. The scripture is clear as to the answers to those many questions. Those who choose to ignore, to suppress pain and suffering, or who don't come to God with their innermost fears, don't look like the people of faith we read about in scripture. We read chapters like Hebrews 11 and can be misled to assume that these people that we are reading about had track records where they put blinders on to the circumstances of life and with strong determination and dependence on God, simply trusted in God and everything was fine. And as such are examples to all of us that we should ignore difficulty and put on a happy face because God is in control and no matter what, everything will be okay. The end of Hebrews 11 
and the actual recorded narratives of these people tell a very different story. They tell of a Moses fleeing for his life, then pleading with God not to be sent back to Egypt. They tell of a Gideon who put out a fleece not once, but twice, of a Jacob who would wrestle with God as he shuddered in fear of an aggrieved brother approaching with four hundred men, of a Rahab who acknowledged the fear that had fallen on her as she heard of what God was doing to the people around, of a Samson who in blindness and hopelessness asked God for strength once again, of a Joseph who would be sold into slavery and end up in a jail cell, no doubt crying out to God for deliverance. Men and women of faith did not receive that designation because they put on a brave face. They got there because they prostrated themselves before their God and in their weakness and insignificance acknowledged that without him they could do nothing of or for themselves. And God chose to speak to them, heal and restore them, and use them in their weakness, not in their strength. In doing so, in the humility with which they approached God to entreat him on behalf of their circumstances, they brought God the ultimate glory, both in the circumstances at hand and also in the way each of these pointed forward towards the ultimate fulfillment of who they typified, Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Knowing my own heart first and foremost, and the pride that makes it so difficult to acknowledge my need for God, it can sometimes feel easier to project that everything is okay, even to God, than to admit that what I really need is to set my pride aside and share with God how I am really feeling and that I need his help because I can't do it myself. Faith did not require any of these individuals to ignore their circumstances. Rather, Faith found individuals within those circumstances taking the full weight of that burden to their God. This is not the time for an escapist attitude or mental avoidance of the harsh realities that we are being confronted with. It is the time for an experience like Gethsemane. Employment is gone. For many who do still work, and in particular, I am thinking of our healthcare workers who are inside the hospital rooms of those clinging to life, simply putting one foot in front of another requires strength given from heaven. And for so many others, from police and emergency responders to our grocery store workers to custodial staff, bankers, home installers, so many other essential workers, Every day requires a deliberate decision to prioritize the needs of others over what your own will would be. Possibly a decision you have made while staring into the eyes of anxious loved ones who remain at home each day and now greet you awkwardly when you return. If all of this hasn't happened to you yet, you worry that it will. Mobility is constrained, loved ones are sick, some are dying, loneliness is real. We miss our church, 
Activities we used to take for granted now bring anxieties. We wonder whether this will be the means by which we contract the disease. This is not something we would want, but here we are. And our cry may very well be, God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? I recognize, God, that compared to the faithful of history, I am insignificant. But you are my God. Where else am I to go? I am powerless before this disease that comes against me. I am at a loss what to do. Hence, my eyes are turned toward you. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. My friends and my companions stand back because of my affliction. Cast me not off in my old age, all of which are laments used by writers of Scripture. That might be where you are right now. And if it is, we sit with you in silence, crying out in our hearts to God on your behalf, asking that if it is possible, remove this cup from those who are experiencing these anxieties today. If that is you, you may want to pause listening right now. Scripture presents with clarity that where you are is okay. It is where God has brought you. We are here with you, and it might last for hours like with our Savior. It might last for a month like David as he would cry out to God for the life of his child. It might last for many months like Joseph in prison or for years like Moses in the wilderness. There is no need to put on a happy face and try and move past. Silence, tears, and the yearnings of your heart to God is where you are supposed to be. And it's okay. For some, in that cry you have been given some of the same experiences that the psalmists shared. Experiences that in our pain provide the basis for our faith, provide us with hope. It does not let you escape, but it sustains. Those experiences are precious, and I would like to share four. Recollection, worship, and returning to the later stages of grief to acceptance and meaning. It can lead to experiences of recollection. Over and over we read of individuals who would recall the mighty deeds God had shown in their own lives and throughout history, requiring the opportunity to be still, requiring the opportunity to draw near to God as a way to fully bring to mind the marvelous truths of what God had accomplished. When I think of my own experiences, my mind in this moment immediately goes back to that time in my life when I trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. That was another experience that has many parallels to this one. It was an experience which brought me to my knees. It was an experience which brought me repentance. 
It was an experience when I cried out to God, acknowledging that I was undeserving, that I was the sinner, and that I deserved God's judgment. And it was in that moment that God chose to reveal to me that his son had died for me and caused a miraculous change in my life, changed me from death unto life. And I am so thankful for the quiet moments that allow my mind to go back and remember this tremendous moment in history within my own lifetime when God reached in and touched my soul. I would ask you whether or not you have had that experience. And is it possible that during this time when we are forced to think, when we are forced to reflect on life, when we are forced to face some of life's worst fears, could it possibly be that in that moment we will come to understand that we have a need far greater than being preserved from coronavirus, as important as that is, but that we have a soul that needs salvation we have a God who wants to be our Father. We have an eternity that we need to prepare for. And could it be that during this time, you too will see your need of a Savior and will trust Christ for eternity? Beyond experiences of recollection, and often as a result, it can lead to experiences of worship. We have the benefit of reading many psalms where the writers share openly the bitterness of the sufferings, but writing with that reality now behind them are able to clearly see where God's hand had come into their circumstances and provided help for which they were able to then thank him individually and openly amongst their peers, giving God the glory to demonstrate that it was him who had rescued, gave way for him to be glorified. In truth, this is the ultimate meaning. But before we get there, it can lead to the experience of acceptance. Jesus could have sat in the garden meditating on the royal psalms. He could have spent the time telling his disciples about the amazing victory about to occur. Instead, he spent it alone in agony of soul. And as we look a little closer, we begin to see what happens to someone pouring out their heart to God. There is a progression of Jesus' request to his Father. From those first words already mentioned, Matthew records a second prayer. My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. The difference is subtle but crucial. It is acceptance. This acceptance very quickly extended publicly, it is only after his experience in prayer that he would rhetorically ask of Peter, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? But notice that the acceptance is not of the future glory. He doesn't say, thank you, Father, for reminding me of the amazing victory I am about to achieve. I'm ready to go now. He acknowledges that there is a future ahead that God controls, and he is willing to face the full reality of what that experience is going to be. His faith was demonstrated not in seeing past the circumstances. His faith was in seeing that in the depths of despair, there was a God to whom he could cry, 
and in that time of need, his father would provide the necessary strength. Yet beyond acceptance, in drawing near to to a God who is in ultimate control, we can have the privileged opportunity to discover and experience meaning. In seeing this framed within the passion of Jesus, in what must be some of the most amazing and bewildering truth of Scripture, we read almost breathlessly these incredible words spoken of our Savior, so learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. God had something he wanted Jesus to experience in his humanity, for there to be growth. And as we look beyond this moment in time into the future which God himself knew, he knew that what Jesus would learn in his humanity while suffering these things would allow Jesus to become that ultimate great high priest, the one whom now each and every one of us can turn to, knowing that no matter what we experience here on earth, he has experienced it as well. He understands. He knows what we're going through. He's cried the same cries that are on our hearts right now. So learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. What we struggle to understand in applying this truth to Christ is easy to apply to us. We have a God who earnestly desires us to grow more into the likeness of his Son daily and has a tendency to use the circumstances of life, especially the bad ones, to ensure that there is an opportunity for us to grow. What Scripture and our Lord's example teach us is that it is okay to be troubled in our souls as we anticipate a future that looks hazardous. It teaches us that this response is right. We will learn something if we approach God with our anxieties, with our pain, with our hopelessness, and wrestle with him over things that in ordinary circumstances wouldn't cross our minds. We can ask him hard questions. We can cry to him for help. He can be our sounding board for the issues that make us want to cry out from the top of our lungs Scripture teaches us that this is what faith looks like. And it is what brings God the ultimate devotional glory, as we will no doubt find ourselves, like the psalmists inevitably did, praising God for performing unimaginable acts of goodness and grace in the middle of trial. Some of those stories are already appearing for every exile, There are books written by Daniel and Ezekiel of God moving in power with those who were close to him during the circumstances. And so, what will our own individual experience be? Will our focus be on getting through this and being thankful once it's over? I have no doubt that tremendous thanksgiving will ascend from this earth into the very throne room of God when, perhaps months or years from now, this is behind us and we can just simply bow our heads and be thankful for the goodness of God. But will it be? Could it be? Whether individually or as his church, 
that this will be the opportunity when we are able to discover God in a new way and in humility to let him teach us and change us all for his glory and for the glory of his Son.